Hello, everyone, and welcome to our next episode of Policy Wise. I'm really thrilled today to be joined by Cindy Lenhoff, the director of the National Child Care Association. Today, we'll be talking a little bit about the state of child care in the United States, learning what the current status is of child care, what are some of the efforts being made, and what are some of the problems that we might be able to tackle as young folks just starting to address some of these issues and seeing these issues all around us. Now, before we jump in too much about Cindy and learning more about her, Cindy, I was wondering if you could come on and give us a little bit of a background about the National Child Care Association, what it does and how it fits into policy within the United States. All right, well, I think one of the best ways to kick off that conversation is to share our mission statement with you. And our mission is to promote the success of licensed providers in quality care and education, including the provision of professional development, advocacy, and community engagement. One of our key responsibilities, because I feel like this is a responsibility that we have, is to make sure that our members, which are professional, skilled child care owners and educators know what is happening at the federal level and the conversation that is being had at the federal level as far as how to support child care and address the issues that actually have been plaguing the child care industry for a very long time, but actually came to a head during COVID and making sure that we keep people connected from coast to coast and educate them on how to be advocates in a unified voice in order to help themselves so that they can help the families. Because unfortunately, it is very difficult in the current state of childcare to maintain a small business that can thrive. And 93% of our child care industry, the licensed child care industry, and the licensed family child care homes, which also include not only our child care, but their early education as well, they're at risk at this point. Because if you can't pay your bills and pay yourself for the work that you're doing, then you're going to close and disappear and we're going to lose what little bit of child care infrastructure we currently have. Great. Thank you so much for sharing. And so if I if I get this correctly, the National Child Care Association sort of serves as like a voice to child care organizations in the sense that keeping child care organizations informed about what's happening, but also a voice of the child care organization. So taking whatever efforts and problems are needed from child care facilities and making sure that's advocated for on like a national policy scale. Is that correct? It is. It, it's very correct. Awesome. You touched on this a bit, um, but I was wondering if you could cover some of the current problems that are facing child care facilities, as well as why those problems exist. So I know you touched a bit on just like the economics around child care facilities, the inability for them to remain open and sustain. Could you touch on that issue and any others as well as, yeah, talking about why that particular issue is a problem and where you see the causes of those issue, that issue coming from? Well, I think, you know, there are 
a few root causes that we must recognize and address in order for child care, licensed child care to thrive, because if they don't thrive, they can't serve families. One of them in this day and time is 51% of all children in the United States between the ages of zero and six live in what is called a child care desert. And a child care desert is defined as an area where there are more children than there are child care spaces available. Another issue is that we've had so many individuals leave the child care industry during and after COVID. In fact, about one third of our workforce left and did not return. And with the current inflationary you know, economy, Starbucks, FedEx, other service industries that don't really require a lot of skill, as does childcare, are able to pay more than childcare centers. So losing our workforce has definitely been a big issue. And when that happens, many providers that are out there and willing to provide childcare to customers can't because they can't staff their rooms. And that is especially true in infants and toddlers, where the number of staff needed to care for children is very high. The average is one staff member for every four children. So that's a lot of people needed to care for the younger children. So accessibility is an issue. Affordability is an issue. Unfortunately, because the cost of producing high-quality childcare and early education has increased so much over the years. We are seeing that roughly one in three working parents in the United States are using informal child care arrangements because they can't afford or access child care. So they're using relatives, friends, neighbors, or they alter their work schedules so one parent can be home. Or over two million women did not return to the workforce after COVID, and many of them did not return due to childcare issues. So they are not working because they can't find childcare. Got it. Thank you so, so much for sharing. You know, these are really great statistics. And I think I want to walk back from to the first point in terms of accessibility. When you mentioned sort of the accessibility of various child care support, and we talk about maybe like what this looks like. Could you define a little bit what qualifies something to be like an official child care facility versus something that is informal? Yes, a child care facility must be licensed, you know, by the state they are in. There are no exceptions to that across the United States. It's a process and each state dictates how many children can be in a class by age. Some have lower ratios, uh, teacher to child ratios than others. And if the ratios are very low, that's great for children, but it also increases the cost to parents, especially in a day and time where providers have had to dig deep and raise pay in hopes of getting more people to come back to work. That is one of the things that, hmm. you know, is causing parents to have to use informal care. We also saw 
several thousand child care centers and and when I say child care centers, I'm always going to refer to licensed, licensed child care centers and licensed family homes. We saw several close during COVID and they never reopened. And the statistic on that is probably in the area still of about 16,000 child care providers and or homes combined that were licensed close their doors. And it was because some of the help that was provided childcare, which was very generous in the ARPA Act that was passed in early 2021, came too late to help some of those providers. Awesome. This is this is really, really great information. I think, you know, for me and probably similar to a lot of our listeners, there's just not like for me, I just like don't have a good understanding of what's happening in this space. And so it's, it's great to sort of just get like a grounding of what this means, how this works, why things are the way they are. So like looking back to this point of understanding what child facilities are, sort of why there's different requirements and what's under different licensees. I'm guessing that there's been sort of an ongoing battle and please correct me if I'm wrong between making sure that these facilities are adequate for children and parents and for providers while also balancing the need to to meet the high demand of just like children. And so like pressing a balance there between having like quality versus like quantity and matching that in the current state. So one thing that I like was interesting is like having one caretaker to four children seems like a good ratio in order to like maintain and keep track. But I'm also, yeah, like you said, that's like a very expensive process. So, and and like looking at how this is differentiated from maybe what we would consider normal public schooling. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like the economics of childcare facilities. It's my understanding that I'm not sure about how the how money from like the state or the federal government impacts these facilities. Is there any impact coming from the federal or state government? I know you mentioned the ARPA Act, but prior to that act, is there funding going to private facilities or are there certain sort of like public institutions that exist for childcare currently? Well, let me try to give you a reader's digest version. <laughs> of how childcare is funded currently in the United States, both before and after COVID. Because, and this is outside of the special stimulus packages that were put into play to keep our current infrastructure from completely failing. Childcare is funded at the federal level and passed on to the states through what is known as the Childcare Development Block Grant. This particular piece of legislation had its beginning back in the 80s, and it has continued to be the one and only federal resource for child care. And currently, it is funded at about $8 billion a year. And we did get an increase of almost $2 billion a year this year because it comes up in appropriations every year as what is known as a discretionary expense. The discretionary word really throws me because I'm thinking how can children, childcare, how can this be discretionary? However, right now, there's only enough money in that fund to take care of one in six children that qualify 
and the qualifier is currently set at or below the poverty level. And then when that money passes from the federal government to the states, the states determine their poverty level because it's different, you know, in different states based on the economy. And we all know that it's more expensive to live in the Northeast than it is to live in the Southeast and more expensive to live in the Northwest than the Southwest. And one of the issues in both the Southeast and the Southwest is there are more children that live in poverty in the Southwest and the Southeast. So by the time that money gets to the states and they have to spend it according to some very weak rules that were passed years ago and haven't really moved forward with the industry and the cost of the industry. And I can elaborate on that a little bit. They also can invest in training with that money. And each state writes a plan on how they're going to spend their child care development block grant money. However, nobody really holds them accountable for the plan. And so sometimes whatever plan they submit changes, and a lot of it has to do with the governance of each state and what the priorities are for the actually the politicians in those states. And that's what it boils down to. So at this point, the policy is linked not for all children, but for children who are at or below the poverty line. And even in that case, only one in six of them could actually be fully funded under what is regarded like a proper child care facility. And with that, states still have the discretion of deciding exactly how those funds are dispersed. Yes, that is correct. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the way the rules are written now are the policies for the child care development block grant. States have not been expected to actually pay a licensed child care provider for the cost of care. In keeping a child. And so a lot of times child care centers are forced to subsidize that, you know, out of their own pocket, or they up the rates to what is called their paying customers. And that is starting to push the lower middle and even the middle income parents out of licensed child care, which goes back to the one in three children receiving informal care. Years ago, back in the 80s and 90s, and this holds true today, that parents can afford to spend about 7% of their family's budget on child care. Unfortunately, now, if you're a single parent, you're spending about 30%. And if you are a parent with two children at a median income, you could be spending as much as 20%. It's not possible to do that. They're paying more than their mortgage to have two children watch. They're paying more than you would pay to send your child to a state college. But at least at the state college level, lower middle income can, there's the scholarships and the Pell grants and the loans, things that help parents. There's really nothing that helps parents with childcare. And yeah, I think that that's sort of the impetus for arranging this podcast in the first place was my personal experience discussing the, like having this discussion with colleagues who are currently trying to navigate this and having it be somewhat of a default 
of being like, I'm just going to work from home more often so that I can pay for childcare less often so that I can maintain this. And even on that level, I was like shocked. I'm getting through my work and I don't have the mental load of also taking care of a child all day. I don't, I'm not sure how they're doing it. And so, yeah, this is just such, such an important conversation. I was wondering if you could go into a little bit about what the National Child Care Association's approach is to addressing some of these issues and some of the things that you are maybe optimistic about and some plans that you think could be good steps forward. Okay, well, one of the things that we have made it a point to do at the National Child Care Association and what to do is to partner with other like-minded associations because one of the opportunities that we have is to become one voice for childcare in early education versus a bunch of little voices or a bunch of silent people and a few voices because there isn't enough money in childcare, even with the larger childcare providers, to lobby like other industries. It's just not there. We can't buy our way into this. We have to do it by unifying and coming together and saying, these are the policies that need to change and this is what is needed to pay for it. Because in the past, and this is why we landed where we are today, there's been so many unfunded mandates for childcare. And so it is just whittled away at childcare providers being able to keep open their doors. We are optimistic because Unlike any other time, we are as associations talking to each other. Child Care Aware of America, the National Women's Law Center, the Early Education Consortium, those are all partners that we intermingle with and get information from and share with our individual members. And also a lot of that information is about how to be an advocate for your business and your business is childcare. And one of the opportunities too that we have been able to put out there because there are a lot of think tanks that do research for us, which is awesome, and they share it, is that we know that our legislators sometimes really don't wanna discuss children's budgets. And because Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, We have a history in the United States of spending much less than 10% on all children's issues, childcare, K through 12 education, homelessness, food shortages, healthcare, even though children are about 25% of our population. But what a lot of our legislators like to hear is, is it affecting our economy? Well, yes, it's hugely affecting our economy. And so we have really made a point to share that throughout our our membership and beyond because it's having a conversation with your state or federal legislator that will at least get their attention. Recently, there was an updated study from Ready Nation that shows that the country took a $122 billion loss in earnings productivity and revenue due to working parents dealing with childcare issues. So the same study was done in 2018 and it had Mm -hmm. an annual cost of $57 billion annually. 
So we are starting to get the attention of some of our legislators because they want the economy to be good. And they're not going to be able to do it without a good early childhood care and education. And we're not only looking at the workforce of today, but what about the workforce we're trying to develop for our future? We know that that early education is critical to that piece. The other thing we're optimistic about is this conversation Hmm. is bigger than it ever has been. Just like you and I having a podcast and being concerned about what do young people people need to do today because they're thinking about, can I even afford to start a family? So they can help us get out in front of this by keeping the conversation going with their legislators and their expectations. Right. It's super interesting to sort of hear the outline there. It's one of those things where I like, I wish I was surprised, but I'm not that like, it's not surprising to hear how, (laughs) how uh, little dedication there is to sort of the like general needs of children. I mean, it's what we talk a lot about here on this podcast. And I mean, there's so many incentives working against the youth in terms of why policymakers would give the attention to them. And and that being like, children don't vote, children don't do this, children don't do that, and not seen as, as critical, full humans in a lot of different ways. So it's really interesting to hear about. And I think, you know, seeing the approach that is being taken in terms of like speaking to policy makers on like speaking to them in their language in terms of the economic impacts of childcare makes a lot of sense. And like, I think it's something that you would feel obvious, you know, living in like a normal day to day life of being like, yes, if I am taking care of a child, it's going to cost me a lot more money. And that's going to overall impact my career trajectories and impact the economy and so on and so forth. Same with if you're in school, and you're looking forward to what your education is going to lead to. And it feels like sort of that human capital argument of why you would want to invest in future generations. I, I, I can see why there are issues there. And it's interesting to learn about and also interesting to see what types of advocacy would be helpful. To that point, I was wondering if you could dive into some of the tools and equipment that you would advise people, maybe like young people or all people, about what sort of conversations they should be having with their policymakers in order to get this across. So I think, you know, talking about the economic impacts is a really clear one. Has there been other aspects that you, and other arguments that you've seen be relatively successful? So far, I think that's the number one for hmm. part of our, you know, political environment. I think that more women mm-hmm. in Congress can help this argument because they have been there and they may still be there. I think they're going to have to find their voice and make sure that regardless of what side of the aisle they sit on, that, you know, they be brave enough and have the courage to listen to us as providers that have been doing this for years on how to make it work for families. Sometimes there's that, you know, we all say children are nonpartisan, but that's not really how it usually comes across. Hmm. I do know that one of the best ways to get this into a more positive bipartisan arena is that we can't just talk funding and business to our federal legislators for sure, and even our state. There's certain policies that really need to change that would help move this along and get the support, the bipartisan support of our politicians. And one is 
First of all, recognizing that the current childcare infrastructure that is made up of professional, skilled, licensed childcare centers and family childcare homes is having the capability of providing both high quality care and education. We still see that at the federal level, the interpretation is, is that they're two different entities and that we have to invest in them separately and we have to have two separate infrastructures. That's absolutely not true. We need to further educate our legislators, whether they're federal or state, on what we look like. And that's getting more of them interested in visiting our centers, welcoming them into the, you know, our schools as we actually call them schools. So that for one thing, if you combine those two entities, you're not going to need as big of a federal investment because it can work together. And also after all the years of what licensed childcare centers have been able to do on a very fragile margin in childcare homes as well, bringing us into the conversation. That's not happening as much as it should at the federal level with all of the entities that have a stake in this, which are a responsibility to it, like the Office of Child Care at the federal level. There's a little more interest in it now than before, but we're still not being invited. And that is necessary, but we also have to get out there and let people see who we are. Unfortunately, with all of the unfunded mandates, as I said earlier, it has really cost parents a lot of money to have their child in childcare and has forced many people out. Another policy that would help bring this more to a bipartisan issue is putting into place a requirement at the federal level that states must pay the actual cost of care for children receiving federal subsidy funds through the Child Care Development Block Grant. Because right now, that's not written into that. So because states have so much leverage in how to spend the current funding, there's a bit of reluctance of some of our policymakers to give child care more money because the policy is too loose. And so if we would focus on paying providers what it actually costs, and currently there's been a huge movement on establishing cost analysis for childcare, mm-hmm. and some states are actually using it, New Mexico being one of them, they're making some amazing strides to get childcare funding, not only at the federal level, but at the state and local level, so that they can utilize or create their own policy that they are going to pay providers what it actually costs to provide the care. Another policy would be to provide for early childhood educators working in a licensed child care center that have degrees or credentials, just like those working in public school, be treated with parity in pay and benefits. And that's a huge issue because in childcare over the last 20 years, we've worked really hard to support the education and the credentialing of our staff. And I can't tell you how often once they finish those degrees Mm -hmm. or their credentials, they go to the public school because in spite of the fact that public school teachers still aren't paid as well as they should be in most cases, Mm -hmm. they're paid a lot better than (laughs) the childcare provider. 
So we've got to address that. And we've got to find ways to fund it. And that's going to have to start at the federal level and then trickle down to the state level. And one of the options for that would be to think about our private child care providers pay huge amounts of money for leases on buildings that they do business in. It costs upwards of $5 million in the Northeast to build a state-of-the-art child care center. Yeah. So think about the taxes on that. Where can we get some relief as a provider? Because we are educating children just like public schools. And the big one that just seems like, for lack of a better phrase, a no-brainer to most of us, and that is let's change the amount of money a parent using licensed child care can claim on their income tax. The amount that is currently in play was established in 1986. So we're talking, you know, almost, what, 50 years? Currently, the maximum credit is only 35% of up to $3,000 for one child and $6,000 for two or more. Needless to say, parents are now paying up to $10,000 on average for one child and $20,000 for two. And we've never addressed that, and we've really pushed for it. And that would help the middle income as well. So there's an opportunity there that would support families. Awesome. These are these are really interesting solutions. Thanks so much for sharing. I think there's like a lot to dive into. There's a lot of different levels of complexity from like tax breaks to overhauling whole federal funding. So it's just really, really interesting. I'd be really interested to explore the audit that they're doing in New Mexico right now to figure out the best way forward. I'm curious and sort of like your take on how you've seen this be an issue, how this issue has maybe affected women specifically and how you see that trickling into maybe more efforts happening from women in terms of advocacy and sort of like what you see the path there is for people going forward and how like more people can get involved. Well, of course, as I said earlier, we have approximately 2 million women that have dropped out of the workforce between 2019 and 2021 due to childcare challenges. And these are women that some just want to work and others really need to work. But if you can't find a place that you feel comfortable leaving your child, then it's just inevitable that they're going to be the one to stay home. Because there's still a myth, a lingering myth, especially in the United States, and many of our politicians believe that women still belong in the home and that men should be breadwinners. The ideology assumes that childcare is a private family manner and thus privately funded. So we, we have to get past that in order to get women back to work. And think of all the jobs that are open right now and companies that can't fill positions especially skilled positions. And think about even those just going out to eat and being able to get a meal served within a reasonable period of time. We've got to find a way to get women back into the workforce. And it's going to have to be through childcare. And what's really unfortunate is this affects more low-income women and more women of color because, unfortunately, there is less affordable and accessible child care available in communities that are less affluent and rural communities because typically they're not very affluent either. 
So we are missing a lot of women in those categories in the workplace. And we should be more interested as a country in helping them get back into the workplace. And one of the pieces of advice I would give parents today and young people wanting to be parents is for them to find something in their community, an organization, and they're, they're out there that are committed to helping find more childcare resources. And then think about not just who they vote for, but making sure that they hold the person they vote for accountable. But first of all, before you can hold them accountable, have they had a conversation with their state legislators? Have they had a conversation with their federal legislators? We send out action alerts for, at the federal level when there's anything you know that we should be talking about, which we're always talking about, to over 24,000 members or people on our mailing list where they can do a quick email or a phone call with a unified message. But we're still not getting enough people talking about it. And statistics say that if within a week a legislator hears from approximately seven constituents that they are concerned about an issue, it starts to become an issue for that legislature. So again, we've got to be very vocal with our legislators. And, you know, I look at the situation that we just had in federal legislation this last year, is that there was a bill before Congress to have $800 billion invested in childcare. And that was split between $400 billion for childcare and $400 billion for early education. And it didn't make it through. Then there was $72 billion that was discussed being appropriated in the IRA bill in the final hour of budgeting in Congress. And we were completely taken out of that bill. And again, if enough people were calling their legislators and knocking on their door, no matter what party they're with, it's going to force this issue to get all the way up to the legislators. Right. And just so I'm aware, in terms of sort of like the synchronized messages that are sent out, is there a way to sign up for these that we can just like announce here on the podcast and hopefully link in the description so that people can find it afterwards and make sure they're signing up? Sure. We welcome not only child care educators and owners uh, to be members of the National Child Care Association so that they can receive our action alerts and the information, you know, that we dispense to our members and beyond. Um, they can go to nationalchildcare.org. And for $30 annually, they can be a recipient of everything that we put out. And they can also call us for advice. One of the things that we can do is that we have feelers and partners all over the country. So if they're in a state where they don't really know where to join an organization, we'll, we'll help them find one. Ultimately, that's a pretty low investment. It also helps us keep our advocacy efforts moving. And bigger membership at that $30 rate, you know, would it allow us to have more funding to also do more. But I, I can't say enough about people talking to their legislators 
but not just demanding childcare support. How does that support, how should that look to get the attention of both sides? I'm guessing sort of like the approach that's recommended changes as times change and and there's new solutions and there's different things happening in the policy space. But I am curious, like in terms of painting to policymakers what is wanted, is there something that the National Child Care Association decides on along with other organizations like annually? Or is this something that is just sort of like a needs-based, demand-driven request that can be made? Or is it something that like maybe as people and advocates should come up on their own? So like I'm thinking of a couple of the different solutions that you listed earlier, like like combining sort of childcare with early childhood education along with schools, uh, treating providers in the same way that teachers are treated and better, and then also auditing the what's happening in the state to understand like where the issues are. Is there any current ask that's being requested? Well, at this point, most of the state legislators are in session, or legislatures are in session. And so what we're doing is making sure that the individuals, we, we've had webinars, and we also have a monthly meeting with one of our partners called, uh, actually a webinar for our members called the Early Childhood Consortium. And we're really focused right now on how the individuals can advocate at the state level. And we give out examples of like, this is what New Mexico's doing. This is what Virginia has done so that there's examples and then how to address your legislators. We just had one, a webinar with three state advocate experts that could talk to our members on how to address their legislators because you really have to be very specific in how you address them and what your ask is. Now, when it's time for us to uh, begin working on the federal budget for next year, then we'll start focusing on that level of advocacy. And again, pulling in the same people because a few years ago, what we were discovering is, is people didn't really realize that we're doing business even in the in childcare, that money starts at the top, that it comes from federal funding and it works its way down. And so that's, again, enough people making sure that during those meetings in the fall about what's going to be appropriated for childcare. And when, when there was the $800 billion on the table, we continued to advocate for that. We gave talk points. When it fell off and it became the IRA bill with the $72 billion, again, we're quick along with all of our partners. These are your talk points. If you call, email, write a letter, so that we're all saying the same thing. Why we need $72 billion. What will we do with it? That's our role. So we kind of have to move with the political calendar. So right now, our greatest focus, because again, most states are in session. Governors have given their state of the union addresses, saying what you know they're expecting. And this is an issue that most governors covered this year in their state of the state. We actually provided a website for our members and beyond because we have members and then we have partners and we actually so that they could see what their governor said in the state of the state because it's not always televised and so that they knew how to talk to their governor oh that's really awesome and and like such a good flag 
I you kind of mentioned it a bit, just like going over the state of the state addresses, maybe looking at those addresses as well as sort of anticipation for like upcoming funding cycles. Do you see that maybe through the onset of COVID, there's been more attention driven by businesses because of the impact of COVID? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because we we just, as a country, we're hurting to fill the positions needed to run the country and to maintain business. I don't know about where you are, but where I'm at, there's now hiring signs everywhere. And I mean, you can see a, a McDonald's now hiring at $17 an hour. Mm-hmm. I live in Florida. I see that. But ask me what the average skilled professional child care educator makes right. in Florida, $13 an hour. Right. And so that's, you know, it's out there and businesses are starting to recognize that even though they've move those wages up, there's still not people going to work because they don't have childcare. And that is another opportunity too, is that we're starting to see one of our partners, their name is Tutras. They're working with the business community through the Chamber of Commerces and also going directly to companies to talk about how childcare should be listed on the menu for HR benefits. And that's another thing young people can do Hmm. is to say where they're working is to go to their HR manager and say, what is it, what's available to me? Because I need that benefit, you know, as much or more than healthcare right now. Yeah. Because if I can't work and I don't have an employer that provides me healthcare, you know, I need childcare on that menu. Yeah, no, it's such a, it's such an important conversation and like, you know, as someone who is like sort of starting young professional, definitely not something that I thought of, you know, just considering like I was so focused on, like in, in when I'm doing contracting or like signing on to a new job to making sure that like I wasn't being gypped in so many other ways just because like, you know, what, what is currently known uh, in terms of like women negotiation and things like that and, and like sort of used to being maybe undercut in a lot of ways. So I was so focused on it, but I didn't even consider the childcare aspect, mostly because personal circumstance, but I feel like it's something that even if it's not under your personal circumstance, whether there's any intention to, you know, have a child of your own or anything like that, it's totally something that can be like brought up and just like questioned as a way to sort of like advocate forward and, and see some sort of progress just like naturally over time, particularly something that I would like love if more men maybe would do as well. Cause uh, yeah, I could see it coming from from both angles, from both angles in terms of oh, like people who have children. Or, yeah, come. it needs, and it can come, yeah. From, from, come from both angles. Yeah, come from all over the place. Um, and I, I yeah. think some of our aging politicians need to hear from our young fathers. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And yeah, just like seeing, you know, how like all genders can contribute to this conversation is, is really awesome. So thank you so much for bringing that forward. We're sort of like reaching. Plus, we would mm-hmm. like to see more men working in childcare mm-hmm. and early education, and that's not going to happen until wages are better. Which kind of goes back to uh, an equity issue right. between the genders on pay. But I'm, I, I'm not going to get on that. So fast. <laughs> oh no, I know we're going to need a whole nother podcast. And and I sort sort of with that, I guess you know we're sort of hitting an hour mark here. But I just wanted to ask, you know, thank you so much, Cindy. This has been really, really informative. And I'm hoping maybe in like a future podcast, we'll be able to dive into what progress has been made, some of like the nitty gritty issues, because at that point, hopefully there'll be 
a more wide sweeping policy that addresses some of these particular concerns now. But yeah, do you have any final words or thoughts? First of all, I'd like to thank you for inviting me to talk to your audience, because my goal personally is to leave this world a better place. And I know that I can't do that without the help of those that are going to be taking care of me when I might need elder care. And you are the future leaders, and hopefully sooner rather than later. There's one thing I would really like to make this impactful statement is that the U.S. is ranked 40th in the world for supporting quality, affordable, and accessible child care. And we should be angry about that. It certainly speaks to the fact that we should not let them sleep at night. They should be hearing from us, all of us, to say this is totally unacceptable. It's been so great to have you on. Really, really insightful. And uh, we'll be sure to share some of the links in the description of this episode. Thank you so much. It's been, it's been great. Thanks for listening to PolicyWise. I'm Ellie Arsbecker, and today's episode was hosted by Demi Wack, produced by Jarrett Ramonis and Cody Stobig, and was edited by Rachel Livenall. PolicyWise Podcast is a production of Youth Leadership Institute. If you want to find more great youth content, check out wileye.org and be sure to subscribe to PolicyWise on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And big announcement time, this will be the final season of PolicyWise. It has been such a great ride. Thank you to all of our amazing guests. And of course, thank you to all of our amazing listeners. To discuss this episode, engage with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PolicyWisePod and hashtag your discussions with hashtag PolicyWise. See you next time for more youth voice and policy discussion on PolicyWise.